0: And we're in a series talking about Exodus, God Delivers. And uh, wow, this is an incredible, incredibly important book in the Bible. If you throw out the book of Exodus almost on the same par as Genesis, the rest of the Bible falls apart. And so uh, this study is is huge in that if we understand and we have a full understanding the book of Exodus, it sets up for us to understand the context of why Jesus even came into this world. The book of Exodus is full of what what biblical scholars call types, types or examples, a type of or an example of Christ. And so there's tons of types of Jesus in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of, of Exodus, full of types that picture Christ and his work with his people. But on top of that, there's also a little thing called Theophanies or Christophanies, and Theophany is uh, deals with the its appearance of God. A Christophany is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus, born of a virgin, incarnation that we celebrate in Christmas time. You know Matthew, Mark, Luke, John that those books talk about did not begin in a manger. Jesus preexisted his birth on this earth. He had preexisted the incarnation. Now, you understand that? Okay, John chapter one makes it abundantly clear. That, that Jesus pre he is the word that became flesh, and he, the word was God, and the word was with God, according to John chapter 1. Jesus always has been in the same way that God, the Father, always has been, and the Holy Spirit always has been. And so there is so much theology and doctrine and stuff there. But then we look at this and we're thinking, you know, uh, the problem with this is uh, we've never been in bondage and captivity, so how do we relate to that? concept of being in bondage or captivity i mean how do you relate to being in a place where there's all these false gods that people can worship and there's all these different priests and there's tons of different temples to different false gods we don't live in a pantheistic place and we don't really understand it's hard for us to even grasp that and being in slavery and captivity and god setting us free how can we relate to that well the reality is we can relate to it really really well Something at Cross Life we like to talk about often, and this is why we live with a gospel-centered life, because it gets into this. It's called functional saviors. Functional saviors. Functional saviors are the things that you and I look to to find peace and joy and escape and hope and significance and identity and love. It's the things that we just... We, we struggle with it. We, we just really feel it. Like when I have this, it makes me feel better. When I have this, it makes me feel whole. If I get this, I will feel better. It could be a job. It could be a person. It could be a chemical. It could be a lot of different things. But there's things that we look to as functional saviors to give us life and salvation and hope. And they are idols. And we're no different than the people of Israel, as we're going to find as we go through the book of Exodus, when God delivers us constantly saying, you know, I wish I could go back and eat. The onions in Egypt, they were really great. I've been willing to put aside the captivity and all that stuff so I can have the spices and the flavors of Egypt because they were, they were great, and I'm sick of eating this manna, bread, whatever stuff that we've been eating for year after year after year. I'm kind of sick of that. I want some variety. I'd rather go back to ca- captivity and bondage, and I want to go back to that because they think that Egypt was better. The world was better. The functional saviors were better. And so it's an incredible, incredible book. But to really appreciate it, you have to understand the historical context of it. And so this is going to be a slightly academic morning, okay? This is going to be a little less expositional preaching and a little more historical context, which is part of expositional preaching, is understanding the the context of the book and why it was written. This will help you a little bit, and we're going to do a quick overview of the Old Testament, and so you can understand what you're doing. Because the last thing I want is for you to look at the Old Testament and be like... Wow, that is a big daunting book and I really don't know where to start and I don't know which ways up and which ways down and how I'm supposed to look at it and how I'm supposed to read it. And I read a little bit and they talk about all these different things I don't really understand. And so you punt it and you say, Well, it's really not relevant. Let's just focus on the, the gospels. And though the gospels are beautiful and wonderful, you can't appreciate the New Testament if you have no understanding of the Old Testament. And so as we go from being babies to spiritual children to young adults and we're maturing, part of that is we gotta chew on some food that's gonna be a little more difficult, but more nutritious for us. and making some sense out of the Old Testament. I want you to have some un, some context to understand what we're even talking about and why the Exodus is such a big deal. And uh, hopefully this will be helpful. First of all, understand this. The Old Testament court, the, is, is otherwise known as the Hebrew Bible. The, the Jewish people, Israelites, would call it the Hebrew Bible, and they refer to it as the Tanakh, as the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is is a simple way of understanding the three sections. So if you were to take a, Jew, a Jewish or uh, Jewish scriptures or Hebrew Bible and you were to open it up, and even if it was translated in English, you are to look through it, it would be divided up differently than your Bible is divided up, okay? Um, the Bible is a collection of a whole bunch of books put together, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, put together to make what we call the Bible, which means the book. And so when you... Categorize the Old Testament Jewish mindset. It was in three sections: the the Torah, the Neveim, and the Ketuvim. And so Tanakh is taken from the first couple letters of T O N E K E. Basically, so Tanakh is the T, the N, and the K with a couple of vowels in it. All right, that's how they look at the Old Testament, the Tanakh. So the first part is the Law or the Pentateuch, Pentateuch, Penta, five, Tuk Law. Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the same in the English or our Bible, and it's the same in in the Tanakh and the Hebrew Scriptures. And so you would look at the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Second, you have um, the Nevi'im, otherwise known as the prophets, is categorized into the former and the latter prophets. The former would be Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and then the latter would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, you get the picture. All the way to Malachi, he was the Italian prophet. Seeing if you guys, Malachi, I'm just saying. I was just, you like that. All right, we got a Malachi in our, in our building, so that's good. Uh, and then the Ketuvim is the writings, and the Ketuvim is the poetry books and then some of the other uh, prophetic historical books. So we have Psalms and Job, I feel like I'm standing in front of people, so I'm trying to get in your way. We have uh, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther. That's all part of the writings. And in the prophetic historical books, we'd have Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah was actually two books together. Uh, we have them separate in our Bible, but they were written kind of together in Chronicles, which we know as First and Second Chronicles. Chronicles is also part 1, part 2, the same book, same idea, same writer. So that is the Tanakh. If you want that, holler at me and I'll give you a copy of that. We have too much, we got too much to cover. So uh, you're going to have to write faster or have photographic memory. Uh, The Pentateuch. This is in the English Bible. This is how we divide it up. So if you go to, if you happen to have a Bible uh, in print, which I know they're hard to find nowadays, um, and you don't just have the illumination of the Word of God on your face with your LCD screen or LED screen, what you have in the front of it, you can actually put a little bracket and it might help you break this down and understand the flow of how it was written. So the first five books are the Torah, the law, same as in the Hebrew Bible. Then it's in four sections rather than three sections. And the other three are this, Pentateuch. We have the historical books. Immediately following the Pentateuch in your Bible, you'll have Joshua, then Judges Ruth, which was written in the context of Judges, 1st, 2nd, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they came later, they're the, they're the later ones, but this is the whole history of the following the Exodus, this is the rest of the history of Israel to 400 B.C. And then God, in the midst of this context, of these historical books, He sent some people to do a couple of different things. First of all, He had David... And others wrote a bunch of poetry. Solomon was another one. And Asaph and the sons of Asaph. These are poets that were writing songs and psalms that some of them, many of them we sing versions of even now. And then he sent prophets to call his people back in repentance and faith to God. And so the the other two sections deal with those two categories. The writings or the book of wisdom, the poetry, is, as you see here, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, song of solomon and then you have last but not least the prophets and the prophets we have um some people call them the major and minor prophets the the difference is major prophets are longer books minor prophets are shorter books and so here are all of the prophets and these prophets are prophesying in different times they didn't all live at the same time they weren't all buddies with the same school and all preached at the same time they were, God sent them at different times. Some of them preached to Israel. Some of them preached to Judah. Some of them preached to the people outside of the people of God. Some of them preached, there's a variety of different, some of preached to both Israel and Judah, the northern and southern tribes. There's a lot of different ways that God sent them in messages, but ultimately their prophets sent during specific times to, with specific messages to call the people back in repentance, in faith to God. So that is the Old Testament. Hope you all got that. Now, let me give you a little historical dating and timeline. So creation, <clears throat> I'm not going to get into when that happened, but uh, I think it's six to, to 10,000 years ago, I would say. But nonetheless, the beginning of time. None of us were there, so we can't say emphatically creation. And then we know that Abraham comes along, and he was called of God shortly before 2000 B.C. So Abraham comes along about 2090 B.C., and God calls him and tells him, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. Remember the conversation? Well, I don't really have any kids, so it's going to be tough to have kids, and Sarah's a little old, and she can't even have kids anymore, and we've never been able to have kids, and so how are you going to make me a mighty nation? That's Abraham. And so Abraham comes on the scene around 2000 B.C., and then we fast forward to they find themselves in captivity in Egypt, and then the Exodus happens at 446 B.C. We'll come back to that date in a minute. That's an important date. And then we have a period of Judges, and the period of Judges happens over like 400 years. So whatever history we use to figure out when things fell in the Old Testament, we have to have enough time for the period of judges to play out. God raises up judges to judge Israel because they keep chasing after the false gods of Canaan, and he, they end up in bondage and captivity, and then they repent, and they come back, and God sends a judge to call them back and to help deliver them. The judges were like kings, but they were kind of like priests, but they were kind of like warriors. There were several things wrapped up in the same person and God had a series of the, the most notable being Samson is one that many of us know the judges period and then they say you know what we want to have a king like all the other people's and so God says okay I'll give you a king I'll, I'll give you a guy that you guys will think is great and he gives him Saul and Saul wasn't really that good of a king and they found that you know what God was a better king than Saul and then God graciously gives him David who was known as the greatest king Israel ever had so you have Saul and then David and these guys reigned for a period of 40 years about each and then after David was his son Solomon, and after Solomon, he had a, a son, and the son was a little prideful and arrogant, didn't listen to the older, wise men and the nation, because of the sin of Solomon and because of the um, pride of his son, split, and you have this severing, and it goes from being the United Kingdom to a divided kingdom. And we have the north and south. United Kingdom to a divided kingdom, in the north, you have Israel. The north, northern kingdom, you have Israel. And the southern kingdom, you have Judah. And so Israel divides in 931 B.C. And Israel always struggled with being true to the one true God. They continued to invent. They, they, started, they built their own temple. They had their own place that they would worship. In fact, in the New Testament, the people that are most like the Israelites are the Samaritans. In fact, they're considered to be kind of half-breed, Israelites. They interwed with other people. And so the reason the Jewish people, which are from the southern tribes, so hated the Samaritans is because they had divided years and years ago and they continue to have animosity and hatred towards the Samaritans. And so eventually in 722, per prophecies that God had said, the nation of Assyria, King Sennacherib, come, they destroy the northern tribes uh, and Israel falls. Lakish falls and then they come all the way to Jerusalem and they're knocking on the doors of Jerusalem and God delivers the people of God under the leadership of Hezekiah from the Syrian armies by sending an angel that in the middle of the night, one angel killed, I want to say, 125,000 troops of the most powerful army in the world. One angel. So next time you buy a Valentine's car with a little chubby baby with wings on there, that are, those are not angels, okay? That, that's not what an angel looks like and nor is they're a little tougher than that and so um that's in 722 bc and then the southern kingdoms god gives them some more grace some more time and eventually they fall to babylon in 586 bc and at that point solomon's beautiful amazing gold-laden temple is destroyed to the ground the people of god are carried off into captivity once again many of them carried off to babylon and that's where daniel and shadrach meshach and abednego those guys ended up there jeremiah prophesies before the fall during the fall lamentations is written um ezekiel is written during the captivity all of that is is the books that are from that historical context are you with me so far everybody still awake all right if you need to go get a refill your coffee you're free to do that all right stay with me so um that is the historical overview All right, so let me give you a little more historical stuff, and then I'm going to give you, we're going to talk about Mosaic authorship, or uh, Moses, whether he really wrote these five books. Historical context. Uh, If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I'm going to read some scripture to you, because I want to set this up historically, so you understand that the Exodus didn't just happen, it didn't just like, there was a, mistake and suddenly the Israelites took a wrong turn and they ended up in a bad place and then they got arrested and they grew real and then now this is all part of god's plan all part of god's plan this is important for us to understand because undoubtedly you're dealing with struggles and challenges in your life and you need to know that god has not abandoned you he has not abandoned you and he is still alive and well and involved in your situation Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, eventually he's going to change his name to Abraham, but at this point he's Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God always had the nations of the world on his heart. God, at no point did he say, you know what, I'm going to circle the wagons and I'm just about the Israelites and the descendants of Abraham because they're the only good people on the earth and everybody else is rotten and evil and they're good. Clearly, as you go through the book of Exodus and the Old Testament, The Israelites are not any better than anybody else except God graciously, lovingly, mercifully has placed his affections on them. And because of his name and his covenant and his reputation, he defends, protects, relentlessly loves, rescues, chases after, restores, redeems and provides for his nation. Not because of their righteousness, but because of his goodness and his mercy and his grace and so god always intended to bless them so that they would be a blessing to others bless them so that they would all the nations of the world would be blessed through them and then we move on three chapters to genesis chapter 15 verses 12 through 16 and lots happened before this point but abraham was faithful and he goes and and eventually gets to canaan and while he's there sun goes down deep sleep falls upon abraham abram and behold, dreadful great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own. And he's already told them, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I, I'm, I'm telling you, trust me, I'm going to give you descendants. And your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky. They're going to outnumber the stars that you see, Abraham. And so trust me with this, but I want you to know something else. You're going to have a bunch of descendants, and they are going to find themselves as sojourners in a land that is not their own, and they will be servants there, slaves. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years years you understand we can't start the book of exodus under without understanding that the book of exodus the events of exodus were part of god's sovereign plan for his people do you understand that you understand the implication of that you might be suffering you might be struggling you might be going where is god in my situation where is god in my oppression where's god in my tribulation where's god and god is completely involved in the whole process you're just in the middle of the story and so it looks desperate and hopeless and it looks like there's no way out. And yet God has a bigger picture, bigger plan working. And so you just need to trust Him because the people of God had this word. They could go back to know that God, if they remembered the word, they knew that God would one day send a deliver. Let me read the rest of this verse for you. These verses. But I will bring judgment. They will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation. That they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. (laughs) They're going to plunder the nation that oppresses them. They're going to come out and they're going to have their 401Ks and their golden nest eggs and all their stuff will be filled and ready to go. They're going to be fine. They'll do great after this time. I'm going to send them out and they're going to have great possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. There, right there, verse 15, shows that God believes in heaven and that there is life after death, should you wonder. You'll be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Listen to this. This is one more important thing to remember. Verse 16. They'll come back in the fourth generation, which a generation was about 100 years then. So in 400 years, they're going to come back because the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete you get that the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete they're going to go into canaan now let me just uh, wow really quickly a lot of people want to say well the you know what the the quran and, and the bible they're the same thing and you know the quran has you know talks about conquering people and killing all the infidels but you know what god in the old testament he killed a bunch of people too innocent people were killed no no they were not Nobody's innocent, and God's never killed anybody innocent. Okay, that's never happened, except for his son, Jesus. His only innocent person has ever been killed. But the Amorites were a wicked and sinful people that lived in the land that God had led Abraham and his people to. And he sends them to Egypt, and for that 400 years... They're going through oppression and they're going to be in servitude and they're going to have a really tough life. But one day he's going to send them out and he's going to send them back to Canaan. And when they go back to Canaan, they're going to be the instrument for God's divine d- judgment to be poured out on the wicked people that were slaughtering their babies. Can you imagine a nation of people that would take babies and would throw them into fires and would, would, would destroy them and kill them? Could you imagine a nation that could be that wicked? Oh, Our nation is that kind of nation. And yet we want to say, no, no, we're an innocent people, and we're good people, and we're God bless America. America's great, and America's, no. We are a wicked nation. And we are under the judgment of God in the same way that the Amorites were under the judgment of God. And we need to repent, and we as the people of God need to be a light and know God has placed us here to be salt and light, to be advocates for those who need an advocate, and to support those who are are being oppressed and to bring justice where there is injustice. And most importantly, all of those things fall into the context of changing hearts and lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has not called us to go running into abortion clinics, guns ablazing. God has called us to understand the gospel and to be able to verbalize to other people and to help people stop looking to other things to fill their lives, and for us as the people of God to stop running after false, functional saviors, but to find our hope and our peace in Christ alone. But nonetheless, to come back to the history, God tells Abraham, your people are going to wander away and they're going to be gone for 400 years. And in that period of 400 years, they're gonna, it's going to get really, really, really rough. But hang on, because there will be a point in the fourth generation where I will send them out and they will have great possessions and then at that point, my patience will be up with the Canaanites and the Amorites and judgment will come upon them. And I will use them as an instrument of judgment upon those people. That's the big picture. And so here's the problem with all of this. Here's the problem with all of this. And this is where i want to spend the rest of our time. And, and again, I, I hope <laughs> I, it's just too important for us not to talk about this. I was sitting at East Tennessee State University in my general history class when I was a college student there. And while I was in my class, there was a professor, uh, Dr. Day, who I I liked. He looked like a Scottish-Irish guy. Um, Super neat, neat, nice guy. I like him a lot, except his Bible. I don't really appreciate that. And Dr. Day, he made a statement that rocked my world in some ways. Uh, Not enormously outside, but certainly internally inside he began to talk about the history of the world, and he talked about the fact that before Moses wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, which is, teaches about there is one God, there was a monotheistic Pharaoh that predated him. A monotheistic means mono one, theistic God. So what he's saying is Moses isn't the first monotheist. There was a pharaoh that was before him, and his name was Ankanatan, and he was the first monotheistic pharaoh. And Moses borrowed his ideas when he created the Bible that you all and I believe. He borrowed it from another guy. That's where he got his ideas. He made it up because this other guy had a pretty cool system. And he thought, well, that's a cool system, so I'm going to borrow from it, and I'm going to do that. In fact, not only that, but um, let me have you understand how... Big of a deal. This, is, in fact, Caleb and I were having a conversation about this this week. He was sitting across lunch from a friend of his, dinner or whatever that that went to Emmanuel School of Religion Seminary in our city. Okay, and they teach as a whole that Moses was not the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Deuteron- Deuteronomy. And and so they say, well, yeah, he borrowed from this monotheistic Pharaoh and then other people. Another thing they had, there's a there's a book of laws called the Code of Hammurabi, the Code of Hammurabi. And Hammurabi was a Babylonian, old Babylonian king. And he had had a bunch of civil laws that he wrote down. and, And they predated the Exodus and they predated Moses and they predated the Levitical law. And so once again, liberal scholars say, ah, here we go again. Moses created the Ten Commandments and the law because he borrowed from the Code of Hammurabi. And then there's some other books, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a flood story that some other people believed, and they take that and they say, well, clearly, you have all these different pieces. The Bible's just borrowing and stealing from people, and that's what it's doing. And so I'm hearing this as a student, I'm like, wow, this is really difficult. Do you understand that most seminaries in our country teach this stuff? This is what most of the seminaries in our nation teach most of the seminary, seminaries in the world teach this. This is what they teach. And you don't you haven't heard this stuff because you know why? Because pastors look at you guys and they say, you know what? They can't handle this stuff. You guys, you normal lay people, you can't handle this information. So why would we disturb them with all this information. They're not, you guys aren't smart enough and educated enough to have this information. So we're just going to hold it up here, but it's going to affect the way we preach and it's going to affect the way we view the Bible and it's going to affect the way we view morality. And when the Bible speaks authoritatively to define marriage, you have churches like, but First Baptist Greenville, South Carolina, not Tennessee, Tennessee, great church. Pastor David, spectacular guy, loves and believes the Bible. Greenville, South Carolina, they just said this, couple weeks ago that they as a church will marry and ordain homosexuals and have a problem with that and i'm not here to rant about that that is a sin and there's other sins that we can also talk about we don't need to pick that sin out not talk about other sins but for the sake of argument let me just say how does a church come to that point well the, the minute you throw the bible out and you say well it really isn't authoritative and it's really written by a bunch of men who borrowed their ideas from other people but it is not the divine revelation of god the minute you say that the bible is worthless and I want you to be a people who do not sit here in blind ignorance, trusting your pastor and regurgitating in the streets. Well, my pastor says. Well, my pastor says. Well, my pa- or I was raised. Well, my mom says. My grandfather said. But I want you to understand the word of God. And you don't have to have a master of divinity or PhD to understand that. And you don't have to remember all the things I'm going to talk about, or I've talked about already, and the things I'm going to talk about in the next couple of minutes. But I want you to have confidence in the word of God and to understand what is at stake and what's going on in our world, okay? And so, one last context thing, and then we're going to talk about Mosaic authorship, which is so important. In 1859, Darwin's Origin of the Species was published. I know some of you guys are like, yeah, public school teaches this, and, but we don't believe that. No, no, you need to understand that evolution and the theory of evolution has affected everything. It has affected our laws, it has affected religion, it has affected our economy, it has affected everything... It is the driving force behind socialism and Marxism and communism. It is behind everything. And it presupposes presupposes that things evolve from simplicity to what? Thank you. From simplicity to complexity. So we have a single cell, and it just appears somehow. possible. I don't know. It just appears. And then it gets more and more complex and more and more complex. By the way, the leading evolutionists, you know... What well, they'll say, they, they, will, they refuse to say God started it. They'll say, you know what, I don't know where it came from, but I'm thinking maybe an alien put it there. Dawkins believes in aliens placing it there, but he refuses to consider the fact that maybe God or some divine entity placed it there. Yeah, it was an alien had to put it there. It has to be some kind of naturalistic means. There's no way that it could possibly happen by anybody that exists outside of... Well, anyway. Simplicity to complexity. So get this, follow my train of thought. So if if science goes from simplicity to complexity and evolution works that way, but so also does the laws. Laws go for simplicity to complexity. There is no established, immutable standard that we can come back to to say, this is right, this is wrong. Laws are subject to change based upon the perception and feeling of the populace. Okay, they change, which is why Around this time, Harvard and Yale, just a little bit after the publishing of, of um, Darwin's origin speech, I think it was Harvard first, began to look and they said, we're going to view everything for the lens of evolution. And so they looked at their law department and they said, forget looking at absolute laws. We're going to view everything by case law. And to this day, that is the way our, our system is now. It's all case law. And so everybody rules based upon what somebody else said. Nobody goes back to the Constitution because the Constitution is malleable and can change and needs to change because people change, views change, morality changes. And so what was illegal 10 years ago can be legal now because there's no established true law. Do you understand why this is happening? This is why the, the world's so crazy right now. So not only does it change law, but it also changes religion. And things go from simplicity to complexity. And so they look at the Bible and they say it is impossible for Moses to write the Levitical law and the Mosaic law to have come into existence in 1400 B.C. It's impossible. It's impossible for that to happen because people are too um, simple in their religious and their laws and their religion, There were laws, and so everybody's pantheistic or um, polytheistic. They believe in multiple gods, okay? And so they worship the sun and the wind and the rain and the, the... you know, the water and the whatever, they they worship all of the things and they don't worship one true God. So it's impossible for that to happen. So they, okay, get this. This is what's going on. Let me try to bring all these ideas together. What's happening is they have already made a decision before they ever look at the evidence. They have made what's called a pre, they view everything through presuppositions, presuppositionalism. And they approach the facts and they, refuse to look at the facts of the authority of the word of god of the evidence of archaeology of the evidence of science of the evidence of history they take all those things and they push them aside and they begin with their presuppositions and their presupposition is there is no god and there are no miracles and there's no miraculous, and there's no walking on water and parting red seas and plagues coming to swallow up and do all these different things. And There's no miraculous things like that. All of that stuff is mythological stories created by men to give them something to hang on to. They, their presupposition is none of those things exist. And they never look at the evidence. And so I want to take a couple moments and I want to give you the evidence that supports Moses as the author of the first five books of the Bible. Mosaic authorship. Okay, Now, uh, these are going to be quick and they're not on your note sheet and I can give these to you later, but I'm just going to go through them really quick for, for sake of time. I'll throw them all up there. There's 11 here. First of all, the Pentateuch claims Mosaic authorship. The Pentateuch, the first five books, say that Moses wrote them. Moses attributes the writing of these books to himself and, and they say that Moses wrote it. So first of all, that's a pretty good source. If it says that Moses, maybe we should probably, that should be a, a check in the box of maybe Moses did write this. Secondly, the Old Testament, other places in the Old Testament claim that Moses wrote it. And you know what? It was interesting about that? Okay, we're talking about events that happened uh, 3,500 years ago to 4,000 years ago. And who has a better vantage point of the authenticity of those events? People living today with tenures in professorships in seminaries and in, in secular universities, or the people that lived back then? The people that lived back then, clearly, they had a better idea, and they believed in Mosaic authorship. The New Testament claims Mosaic authorship. In fact, on your sheet there is referenced um, John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. How can you believe Jesus brought grace and truth if you don't believe the law came through Moses? When the Word of God says the law came through Moses. New Testament claims Mosaic authorship. That's just one example. There's many, many more. The traditions of the synagogues, the Jewish people during the after 400 B.C., all the way to the time of Christ and on, have always held that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, as has the church, the early believers in the book of Acts and those that followed in the generations after that. To this day, the church affirms and has affirmed, and that has been the tradition from the beginning. There is no solid external evidences of any other authors. By the way, this is where i got to take one quick second to explain this. J-E, and then you can add D and P. I think it's on your sheet. J-E-D-P theory. What they say is, we don't have time to, I'd like to get in and tell you all, but you need to know J-E-D-P theory. You should understand that. Or you can also write down document hypothesis, because these are things that are thrown around sometimes. And what they're saying is, well, it wasn't Moses didn't write it. There was four different authors. There was the Yawist or the Jehovahist. There was the Elohimist. There was the priestly writer, and there was the Deuteronomist. There's four different writers, and these four different writers wrote at different times and pulled from different sources, and they all got pulled together, and then eventually Ezra or some other later scribe took them and put them together in the version that you have, and so the, they would say that the plagues, the ten plagues, well, some of the plagues were written by this guy, and some of the plagues were by this other guy, and some of this. And then they put them all together, and they ended up with ten of them, and that's how they came into being. And what you're going to see as we go through this book is that they are unified from one source, and there is no seams and no breaks inside them. And so the fact that God has revealed himself and sometimes calls himself by the title God, Elohim, and sometimes calls himself by his personal name, Yahweh, I am the I am, does not mean those are separate authors writing those things. You understand? Okay, and so they presuppose that's impossible. We've got to throw out Moses, so let's come up with another theory that we can hang our hat on. And I want you to understand, this has been just destroyed. The JPD theory has been destroyed by biblical scholars many, 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 many times. So no solid external evidences of other sources. The integrity of the history of the Pentateuch. Man, it's just historical. The more we dig and the more people find stuff, the more they find the biblical account is accurate and right and trustworthy. The uh, theory denies special revelation and supernatural. Again, their theory presupposes that God cannot speak and there is no supernatural events. And so right again, they refuse to look at any of the evidence because they've already made their mind up before they look at the evidence. So to say that you, the people of God, are closed-minded, ignorant people is the dumbest statement in the world for liberals because they refuse to look at all the evidence to their demise. The fact of the matter is, you look at the evidence, it's pretty obvious. The theory denies special revelation, supernatural. It denies archaeological evidences, and it assumes evolutionary development, refusing to, to acknowledge divine nature. There's a stand there. Um, okay, last couple thoughts, and then we're done. All of this boils down to one big thing at stake. One big thing. Remember I mentioned Natan, the pharaoh, that was the, the one guy? We've got to deal with him. Because we can't start the book unless we deal with him. And so, uh, how many of you all saw the Prince of Re- Egypt movie, the cartoon? How I many of you guys, raise your hand like, if you really... Okay, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, you seen that? Okay, or the God and Kings movie, which isn't really good, but... All right, so anybody not seen any of those? All right, you might want to rent Prince of Egypt, Beth and Gary, you need to get that. Um, but it's, it's pretty cool, and there's a lot of it's really neat, but you know who they say was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? They say Ramses was the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and who really cares? Who really knows? I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Yeah, it's an enormous big deal. Because Ramses reigned in the 19th dynasty of pharaohs, and he reigned during 1300 to 1234 B.C. That's when he reigned. And so if he's the pharaoh of the Exodus, we have a major problem because that means that before that time, let me go backwards, okay, 1234 B.C. he died. So before that time, there was a pharaoh, Amenhotep IV, changed his name to Ankanatan, and he changed the capital to a place called Amarna, and he worshipped one god, the sun god. And he reigned during the period of 1421 to 1362 B.C. And if Ramses is the pharaoh of the Exodus, it doesn't mean that Moses, we still can't say Moses borrowed that from him, but it gives an argument some validity. It puts a question mark. But uh, more importantly, it throws off the dating of the rest of the Bible. Remember when we went through really quickly the Judges period? I said there's 400 years that needs to take place there. Well, we don't have that 400 years. Another thing is during the time of the conquest, according to the biblical dating, which would have been during this time when uh, Ramses actually... During Ankhenaten's time, this is the period when the conquest would have been going on. A, group, a series of letters known as the Marna letters, they've been found. People have found these archaeological letters, letters, and they refer to a people group known as the Hapiru, which is a nomadic group, massive nomadic tribe that invades Canaan and takes over. And so the Marna letters are written from governors in Canaan. To, pharaoh, uh, to the pharaoh in Egypt saying, hey, would you send some backup or you're not going to have any lands left because the Hapiru are invading us and we need some backup right now. And he never sent backup. Why? Because I believe that he know, knew better than to mess with the people of God because he had already been there before. And I also think that Ankanatan, the sun god, borrowed from the experiences that these other guys. So this is the 18th dynasty of pharaohs and they date 1501 to 1447 bc tutmosis ii i think would have been the pharaoh that was killing the babies and he was far worse than Ramses ever was he was a he was a great builder but he was a, a a very wicked and hard man and he hated foreigners so it would be in his nature to oppress severely the um people in fact they've even found pictures of semitic people working as slaves four Semitic people would be Jewish people or um, Israelite Hebrew speaking people working for Tutmosis to build his stuff. Tutmosis had a daughter and her name was Hatchitsip. By the way, Prince of Egypt movie says that it was the wife of Pharaoh that got the baby out. Bible says it was his daughter. Hachitsip also reigned during the time of Tutmosis reign, 1501 to 1479 BC. Likely she was the one and she would have been tough enough of a girl to Defy her father's orders to kill all of the Hebrew males, and she spared his life so Moses could become the deliverer of the people of God. And then he was followed by Amenhotep II, which leaves the Exodus dated at 1446 BC. Where do we get that date? Well, you know, when all fails, look at the Bible, Judges chapter 11, verse 26, and First Kings chapter. Uh, 6, verse 1. I'm just going to look at 1 Kings. I want you to see that verse. Here's what it says. When all else fails, look at the Bible. In the 418th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Solomon is going to start building the temple in his fourth year. And so they want to be real specific. And rather than saying during Pharaoh's reign and this Pharaoh and that Pharaoh, they don't talk about names. They just talk about the Pharaoh because who cares about the Pharaoh? But they talk very specifically to the down to the month of when this begins. And we're talking about we can date this to be about 966 B.C. And so if we take 966 B.C. And we add 480 years after this being 480 years after the exodus, we come up with the date of brr, pop drum roll 1446 BC. Beautiful. Beautiful. Acts chapter 13 also mentions that. Why is this relevant? Because you can have confidence in the Word of God. You can have confidence in the Word of God. Exodus chapter 1 tells us. It covers four centuries, 430 years of history in those first few verses where the people of God are dwelling. They find themselves in fulfillment of the prophecies of Genesis chapter 15. They find themselves dwelling in captivity and in uh, oppression and being brutally treated treated in Egypt. That's chapter 1. We're going to get into that more in depth next week. And then chapter 2 covers 80 years from Moses' birth to his exile after he becomes a murderer and he has to flee for his life and he finds himself in Midian out in the desert. 80 years before Moses is called by God to set his people free, God has already, through this whole time, God had already been working. He had spoken to, to Abraham about what he was going to do. His people find themselves, and we haven't even gotten into Joseph and how he found his way into Egypt, and we haven't talked about Jacob being there and the rest of the sons and all of them being there, but then they grow over those 400 years. They become a nation as big as many people say about 2.5 million people over 400 years. They have grown to be massive, enormous, and the Pharaoh has oppressed them. in centuries of seemingly unheard prayers and yet, God has not forgotten. God has not been deaf. God has been sovereignly working in the midst of darkness to bring forth the miraculous deliverance of his people. And understand, as we finish, Moses isn't the hero, Moses was a mediator. Moses was used of God, but Moses was a murderer. He was hot-headed. He was a murderer. And in the midst of injustice, he steps in, takes things into his own hands, and he has to flee to Midian, ends up living there with some descendants of Abraham, Mary's, living on the backside of the desert. And in that period, God reveals himself and says, I want to use you, and I'm not done with you, Moses, and I want to send you back, and you're going to be used by me to display my powerful, mighty hand all over, over all of creation to show that I alone am God. And I will deliver my people. I want you to understand that God is the hero. So if you are here and you're saying, you know what, man, I, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Life has been tough. Life has been tough. Uh, things are hard. I'm, I'm praying and I'm, I'm asking God and he's not doing what I think he should be doing. It seems like he's absent. It seems like he's not there. It seems like he's. He's deaf to my prayers. I want you to understand that God is not deaf. God has not forgotten. God has not disappeared. God has not created the world and then gone off and living on vacation, waiting for this, send his son back to finish it up and close it up. God is intimately more involved in your life than you can possibly comprehend. He has not abandoned you and he will deliver you. I hope you'll come back as we continue to dive into this book more in the weeks to come. As we prepare to pray, I just want you to remind you that, that if we throw out this book, we lose. God, it's a real history and God's redemptive history. And so I, God is involved in changing lives. God is desiring to change and transform lives. And so even this morning, you're not here on accident to hear an academic explanation of The reason I think Moses wrote the book. But you're here to be challenged with the reality that God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. God wants to deliver you. And maybe this morning you're saying, you know what? I need to be delivered. I need to be prayed for. I need to be rescued. I've got some issues and some things that that nobody knows in my heart, my life. Might be your thought life. Might be things you're doing. And you're saying, I need help. I want you to know God wants to set you free. And so as we sing and we reflect an appropriate song... And surrendering our lives to Him. I, I'll be in the back of the room. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to answer any questions you have about this text, about the things this morning. And most importantly, to pray with you if, if you at a point where you want to surrender your life to Christ. We're gonna, Cross Life Regulars will be giving. You can place your cards in the basket here in a moment. But most importantly, this is a time for us just to reflect upon what God has and is saying to our hearts and lives. Father, we pray that you would move and work in our hearts that God that we would be encouraged to know that you have not abandoned us, Father, and that you deliver. In Jesus' name we pray and we worship. Amen.